From Truth, Politics, and Power, I'm Neil Conan. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson with The Democracy Test. Truth and Faith. Political scientist Melvin Rogers says democracy has to be defined in part by virtue, and not just the civic virtue we show on Election Day. The various kinds of cruelties we see on display coming from the current administration and the ways in which crowds sort of chant in support of those cruelties is fundamentally also about virtue, in this instance, the absence of it. We'll also explore the corrosive effect of President Trump's lies, why his supporters don't seem to care, and why we might want to be suspicious when we hear a politician appeal to common sense. It's the democracy test, right after this. From Truth, Politics, and Power, I'm Neil Conan. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson with The Democracy Test. The first thing Donald Trump did following his inauguration was to send his press secretary out to lie. Sean Spicer's claim about the size of the crowd on the mall was not only false, it was obviously, demonstrably false. Since then, the president and his spokespersons have issued a blizzard of lies so thick and so fast that it's hard to keep up. In this final episode of our series, Truth and Faith, we'll ask about the meaning and the corrosive effect of all of those lies. We'll explore the moral and ethical basis of our faith in democracy and try to summarize some of the lessons learned in these programs. But let's start with Democracy and Truth, which happens to be the title of a forthcoming book by Sophia Rosenfeld. She's a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. Her other books include Common Sense, A Political History, and she joins us from her home in Philadelphia. Welcome to the Democracy Test. Thanks so much for having me on. Sophia, you argue that the moment I just mentioned, the lie about the size of the crowd on the mall on Inauguration Day, that that moment marks a transition for Donald Trump from what you call common sense populism to something much darker. Why don't you begin with common sense populism? What do you mean by that? Sure. Well, there is a long tradition in American political life of talking about truth in a sort of folksy vein. And there's always been something, I think, of a tension between a kind of highbrow, exalted rhetoric, often backed up by sophisticated statistics and claims rooted in science and uh, advanced learning of various kinds, and a more folksy style that sort of says, I know things when I see them, a kind of a kitchen table logic that says, you know, there's no global warming because I went outside today and it was warmer than it was this time last year. And in some ways, that's a very long tradition in American political life. And at times, I think Trump hits that chord in an ordinary sort of way, using plain language, folksy analogies, kind of appealing to an everyman style. But then there are other moments when that isn't quite the idiom that he draws upon. And I think that moment you mentioned about the question about the inaugural crowds is an odd one, because to lie about something in which the evidence is so visibly, clearly in front of everybody is to suggest not a lie as a cover-up, but a lie as a kind of political strategy of sorts unto itself. And what is that strategy? And I think that strategy is to say in some ways the facts don't matter. That, sure, sometimes I'm lying, sometimes I'm telling the truth, sometimes I'm making it up, but I'm not going to follow conventional norms in my speech patterns. And authority is essentially going to reside in me. It's not going to be a matter of all of us agreeing on some common premise. So in a sense, he's trying to demolish established authority and replace authority with himself. Is that what you're saying? I think that's a good part of it. I mean, one of the interesting things about American political life and democracies in general is that there is no one source of truth. That truth is important in democracies in all sorts of ways, but it's not a dogmatic truth. It's not a sort of there is one credo and we must all ascribe to it. And yet, when Trump says things that might even strike you as off the wall in some cases or just makes it up, he's insisting in a way that he has control over what counts as truth, knowledge, legitimacy. The president also expresses scorn for expertise. You referred to that before. Isn't that a part of what you're talking about? Yes. I mean, I think there are really two aspects to the lying. One is a kind of moral issue, which is to say, 
truth is the opposite of the lie. It's a deliberate deception. And the other is to say that truth is the opposite of you know, error, unsubstantiated belief. And Trump is not really committed to truth in either of those veins. So I think alongside the kind of lying about basic information, like how many people were standing on the mall on Inauguration Day, comes a style of governance that also isn't very attached to evidence or proof or what you might call established knowledge, elite or expert knowledge. Was it important that at that moment, that first day, that it wasn't Donald Trump who went out there to tell the lie? He sent somebody else out to make the lie, and his spokespersons backed him up. Yes, that's exactly what happened. It actually happened again, but he sort of backtracked on this claim that there are lots of terrorists from the Middle East coming in with a caravan of refugees from uh, Central America. And he sent Vice President Pence out to say, well, they had a certain amount of evidence from the border. And then Trump promptly reversed himself later and said, well, he doesn't really know that there are any Middle Eastern terrorists in the group, but there's every chance there could be. He sort of left Pence, you know, sort of hung him out to dry, which is to say he makes other people have to either back up or find evidence for or scramble to keep up with his own untruths. Well, that strikes me as being a way to consolidate power, too, isn't it? The idea that your truth is more important than what people are seeing with their own eyes? I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's, one doesn't want to be too conspiratorial about all this, but it is a fairly authoritarian strategy to suggest, I say what's true, that other people have to fall into line. It makes sure that people are loyal to him, and it undermines any idea that we can really know what's going on out there. Everything seems slippery. Everything's a maybe. Everything is, it could be this way. There could be terrorists there. But who's, who's to know? Some people are saying there are. Some are saying they're not. It takes away any sense that we have a kind of shared grip on at least what's happening. You've said authoritarian, and in articles, you've directly compared what Trump does to Adolf Hitler and to Joseph Stalin. Is that fair? Or doesn't that go too far? I don't think I ever have directly drawn that comparison. I wouldn't make that comparison. I think there are signs of authoritarian impulses in Trump's behavior. However, we still do live in a world in which there are many institutions that push back all the time against these untruths. Now, how effective they are is another question, but we still do have an independent judiciary, an independent press, people demonstrating in the streets, all of whom challenge at every interval these claims. Now, whether that will remain the case is hard to predict, but I think it, one can overdraw the parallels. I mean, it's, one doesn't want to jump right into sort of saying we're in the midst of full-blown fascism at the moment. But that's not to take away from the fact that there's a lot to be alarmed about at the moment, as your series really highlights. Well, you also write about the Enlightenment, actually, the movement that inspired the framers of our Constitution and that was based on the idea that you could, in fact, discover some sort of shared truths among people. Can you contrast those ideas, those ones that are so important to our foundation, with the ideas that animate this current administration? Yes, I think that's a very important point is that we actually think about this in a fairly long framework, that all of these questions about truth didn't appear yesterday. In fact, they were central to the founding fathers, and they were really to the French revolutionaries in the 18th century too, all of whom were really interested to imagine what kind of world would support the free search for truth, taking truth not to be a set of givens already about the world, but a kind of continual pursuit in which people were always getting a little closer, but you were never going to be there in some absolutely sure way. And American democracy is really premised, I think, on a particular relationship to truth, both that truth will be a starting point, that we'll trust each other and have some sort of transparent openness where we can share ideas and in some sort of trusting way, both between the state and the population and between people. And then that the whole political process itself will result in some kind of higher truths. Even the expression, we hold these truths to be self-evident, suggests a kind of social foundation for truth, that people together are going to agree to some ideals and some larger truths beyond the factual ones. And to my mind, that tradition has been tested at every turn, but it's remained largely in place until just about now. And one of the interesting things I think may be alarming about the current moment 
is how little that kind of aspirational language is still a part of the politics that are emanating from this administration. Not only is there not much talk about liberty and equality and the things we're used to hearing about, but this idea about democracy and truth having some close relationship, even if we know that it's more an ideal than a, a lived reality, it seems dangerous for that to disappear from our kind of political horizons. And I think that's why some understanding of this kind of foundational enlightenment moment is important to the preservation of democracy as an idea. Well, but as you and many others have pointed out, many of Donald Trump's lies are easily disproved, but opinion polls show that there's a solid core, about a third of the country, that doesn't seem to care about something as basic and vital as the truth or as facts, the things on which the Enlightenment were based. Why do you think that is? Yes, this is the perplexing thing, because of course politicians have always lied, and media of different kinds has always peddled untruths and conspiracies, so none of this is brand new in any way and not even just in democracies, even before that. But this idea that so many people don't care, that's what's really an interesting development, an important development. And it has to do, I think, with not just disagreement about what the facts are, but this growing sense that there's no authoritative source for anything, that there are no real standards for truth anymore. And as a result, everything is sort of partisan, is um, political spin of one kind or another. So if you say unemployment's up and somebody else says it's down, it's just because you have different politics. But there's no objective measure of whether unemployment is up or down. And the question is, how did that happen? How did we lose this kind of assumption that we should at least agree on some facts before we move on to opinions, values, the, the contentious stuff? And I think that's really the big question of the day. Some of it certainly has to do with changes in media. The internet has played and social media have played a role, not just in the US, but we've seen this happening now all over the world, from Brazil to the Philippines to Eastern Europe. I think some of it has to do with the economic dislocations of the current moment, the sense that we're not all in this together, that the world is working for some people and not for others. And I think some of it is a sort of response of despair to the questions before us that seem so big that they're intractable. They're not even national anymore. You know, will the, will the planet survive? Um, what to do about uh, migrants all over the world? That these problems seem so intractable in a way that there's a kind of turning away from any kind of work in common to try to find solutions. It's a sort of anti-politics of the moment where you don't have to think Trump or his counterparts in many parts of the world are telling the truth to at least appreciate the fact that they're kind of telling the whole system to go to hell in some way. And here you argue that our only recourse is to that flawed and dangerous idea you spoke of earlier, common sense. So there's an interesting tradition, and I think the person who's clearest on this is Hannah Arendt, actually, who says, common sense can lead us astray in a lot of settings, and populism of a certain kind is always a danger because it insists there's kind of one truth and other people are, are outside it or just spewing something like nonsense. But in moments when there's a lot of lying going on, in moments when you have a situation like perhaps the one we are encountering increasingly in the U.S. at present, Continuing to remind people of sort of basic truths becomes a political strategy unto itself, that common sense can become a kind of way to push back, to say, you know, back to that inauguration crowd, to say, but, you know, I, I looked at the photos, and one of them is half empty, and that couldn't be the biggest crowd in history. And that might seem like it doesn't work to convince anybody in the moment, but it's essential as many people as possible keep doing that, keep relentlessly reminding us of the sort of basic facts as a pushback against a world in which it's very hard to tell what's what. It's impossible to miss how often Trump puts his most outlandish lies in the mouths of others. Uh, he says, you know, a lot of people are saying that Barack Obama was born in Kenya, that sort of thing. Is that just an attempt at plausible deniability or is that a specific technique? Hmm, that's an interesting question. It's a way to keep everybody confused, I think, as much as anything else. I think it's a, 
a technique that says, how do we know anything? Everything's up for grabs. Some people are saying this, some other people are saying that. Uh, he sometimes says, I've been hearing, you know, but without saying from whom or with what evidence. So it seems to me a whole bunch of rhetorical strategies that all work in the same way, which is to say, I don't have facts and figures. I don't need facts and figures. And if I had them, they'd be distorted anyway. You can't really trust, you know, the FBI, the Center for Disease Control, the New York Times, whatever it is. I go by instinct or and I go by what I'm just hearing on the street, so to speak. But the danger there is that nobody knows anything about anything then. Other politicians can't help but notice that you appear to be able to campaign fact-free and still be elected president these days. Do you think that's going to be part of the Trump legacy? Yeah, that's, that's of, of course, the great worry because Trump didn't create the phenomenon of Trump unto himself. He didn't you know, drop out of the sky and he won't be around forever either. The question is, will this style of politics remain? And if it does, what does it mean for democracy and going forward, I think? He, at the moment, all over the world, we're seeing that this is a pretty effective technique that in the age of um, the internet, particularly, it's very easy to spread untruths in such a way that it's not even clear what's a truth and what's an untruth anymore. A populist style, at least, has taken over in many corners of the world with quite different political traditions. So whether this is going to turn out to be a sort of blip in American history, that's certainly possible. The, the U.S. has weathered many crises in the past, including, of course, civil war, or whether this is going to be a sort of turning away from this moment of enlightenment-inspired ideas of truth, I think is very hard to say. It, and I don't think we're at a point yet in which we can really predict which way the winds are going to blow, not only in the U.S., but in England, for instance, as well, Great Britain. There's enormous political division. I mean, it's just about half the population is moving one direction while the other half is moving the other way. So that kind of polarization either suggests we're heading to some sort of real social breakdown or that one side is ultimately going to prevail in what's going to be a pretty brutal struggle. You know, it's interesting. We think of transformational presidents like uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or, or Ronald Reagan. It, it seems odd to put Donald Trump maybe in that category. That may be the case. I mean, he does seem in some ways to be breaking from a tradition uh, there, one can look at policies and say, well, there's a certain amount of continuity with, say, the George W. Bush years, and uh, in some areas, in others not. And certainly um, the Republican Party hasn't been transformed overnight, but yet there is something different. And I think it explains some of the kind of hysteria in opposition, and I think it explains the very fact that Every newspaper in the country is now sort of putting on the front page a chronicle of lies of the president day after day, <laughs> something that's really hard to imagine in a previous moment in quite the same form. So something has really shifted beneath us. And yeah, that might make, that might make Trump, despite himself in some ways, a transformational president. Is he not simply appealing to the anti-intellectual strain that has a long history in this country? That whole idea of why should you listen to experts? Why should you listen to eggheads? Just use your common sense. That seems to be something that's been a strain in GOP history since at least Ronald Reagan. Absolutely. So that's where I see a certain amount of continuity. And uh, I think in the long history of democratic public life in the U.S. it's most evident, but it's true elsewhere too, has been a kind of conflict from the beginning between a growing uh, emphasis on expertise and uh, facts and figures and knowledge derived from elites of various kinds, particularly educational elites, but that often means also economic elites on the one hand, and this kind of populist tradition, sometimes just as a rhetorical cover, sometimes more profoundly, but a story about the people being dispossessed of their basic know-how and instinctive sense of how things should be and how they are. And Trump vacillates a little between those two registers, but I think that the pushback that we might call populist as shorthand comes also from a recent triumph of a more technocratic vision of truth. So when Europeans protest against the European Union or Americans complain about politics inside the Beltway, they're complaining about some of the same things, which is a kind of politics that seems cut off from real people, that doesn't 
ask real people what their concerns are, doesn't care about their values. And populism says, you know, throw, throw it all out, throw out all that um, obfuscating, euphemistic language, all that um, highbrow, highfalutin uh, studies, and get, let's get back to what we know just by going about our business, you know, just the, the knowledge that comes from experience living in the world. There's something, of course, really hypocritical, perhaps you might say, about a man like Trump, but any other number of political leaders who use that language, uh, who are, tend themselves to be wealthy, educated, living right inside that bubble, trying to pretend they're sort of regular folks. But Trump is sometimes described uh, as kind of a cartoon character version of a regular person. He's sort of richer, larger than life, but still has the sensibilities um, it seems to be supportive, in particular, in the taste of an ordinary person. And it allows him to kind of play it both ways, I think, to be a kind of TV star at the same time as he's also presenting himself as just a regular guy who happens to be a little bit richer than everybody else. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. Sophia Rosenfeld's new book is Democracy and Truth, A Short History. She's the Walter H. Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. You can learn more about this program at our website, which is truthpoliticsandpower.org. While you're there, you can listen to all the programs in our archive, including previous editions of The Democracy Test. That's truthpoliticsandpower.org. Coming up next, why we shouldn't trust that checks and balances alone can solve our problems in Washington. Stay with us. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Neil Conan. It's The Democracy Test from Truth, Politics, and Power and APM, American Public Media. This is The Democracy Test. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Neil Conan. The thesis of this series is that American democracy has survived serious challenges in the past, crises that proved the resilience of our institutions, our belief in each other, our determination to make our country a fairer and more decent place. All of those principles are being tested again. And there's a long list of books and articles that raise dire warnings of democracy's demise. So it seems worth asking about the basis of our faith in democracy and how we can imagine coming out of this crisis a better country. Melvin Rogers teaches democratic theory and the history of American and African-American political and ethical philosophy at Brown. He's the author of a book on the 20th century philosopher and educator John Dewey called The Undiscovered Dewey. His forthcoming book is The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. He joins us from his home in Warwick, Rhode Island. Welcome to the Democracy Test. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us, John Dewey was a man of many parts, but underlying everything, I think, was his abiding faith in democracy. Is that something you share? Yes, I do. Dewey's idea was that Democracy was not only a political system, but that it was a way of life that created the space for the maximum flourishing of, of human beings. And to that extent, it was a way of life that uh, trumped all other kinds of uh, ways of organizing political society. In an article you wrote for the Boston Review, you argue that our faith in the institutions of government, in the checks and balances built into our Constitution, that that very faith can lead to a dangerous complacency. Yes. What I was trying to uh, get at there was the ways in which we have come to think that our institutions run on their own inertia, and that in coming to believe that we have not attended to as we ought to, uh, to the kinds of human beings that inhabit those institutions, that stand behind them, and that actually serve as the foundation for their proper functioning. Well, then if we can't rely on those institutions, or as we've examined in this series on checks and balances, or on the written rules, the norms of democracy, where can we turn for, well, redemption? I mean, that may sound like a strong word, but these are pretty trying times. No, so I don't think that the issue is exclusively or primarily about making use of our institutions. The real issue is when we think our institutions 
can compensate for the absence of of virtue, for the absence of commitment to uh, the equal dignity of persons. And so when we ask the question of, well, in the context in which we find ourselves currently, where can we turn? Well, in truth, we actually have to turn to ourselves. That is to say, we have to ask the question, who do we take ourselves to be in the practices in which we participate and the institutions through which we move? And if we do not ask that question, then we will fail to grapple with the challenges of our current moment. So you see democracy and the survival of democracy as something that is very personal to Americans. So one of the things about the formulation that I just offered up, what I just laid out, is that when we phrase it in the form of we need to ask the question who we take ourselves to be, this is typically rendered as a kind of personal question. But in truth, it's a sort of collective question. That is to say, the question is put to the citizens of the United States. We collectively need to grapple with who we take ourselves to be as a community. Now, it is true that in grappling with this question collectively, we have to deal with it on an individual basis. But we should not separate these two things. That to ask the question is always to ask the question about the communities to which we belong. What practices are we participating in by virtue of those communities, right? How are we being presented um, internally and externally to the world by virtue of the policies that pass in our name, right? So this is what the question is really driving at. I wanted to follow up on something you said earlier. You used an interesting word, uh, virtue. By that, did you mean civic virtue? Well, civic virtue, you know, civic virtue sort of narrowly is confined to political participation, typically, historically. So it includes that, right? But it actually extends beyond the polling booths, right? The various kinds of cruelties we see on display coming from the current administration, and the ways in which crowds sort of chant in support of those cruelties is fundamentally also about virtue, in this instance, the absence of it, right? And so when I talk about virtue, I both mean civic virtue in a more narrow sense of participatory democracy, but I also mean it more expansively. You obviously turn to John Dewey for guidance. Are there other figures in American history that you think can provide some insight as we face what you've called a test of our moral culture? Well, I think that this is the interesting thing about uh, about the richness of America's moral and political tradition. There's a whole host of figures. There's W.B. Du Bois in our contemporary time. There's Cornel West. Uh, there's Ida B. Wells. There's Thomas Jefferson. So there's a whole range of figures, right, that insist upon us thinking about democracy as both a way of organizing our political lives at the institutional level, but also that put to us the question of sort of how must we be if we're going to sustain those institutions? How must we act or comport ourselves vis-a-vis our fellows if we're going to sustain those institutions, right? And one of the problems in our current moment, I think, and sometimes it emerges from the left, is to often argue that the line that we are currently hearing about nationalism, the problems that we uh, constantly see around white supremacy, that somehow those things exhaust what the American tradition is about. These things are part of the American tradition. But the American tradition is far more uh, capacious and robust, and we need to figure out a way of how to sort of draw on those resources as we beat back the darkness that is slowly creeping in. Some of the names that you mentioned as inspirational in the recreation of democratic civic virtue were African-American names, and you specialize in African-American political history. In this moment, that community faces the same moral crisis as the rest of us, but it has the added edge of racism, which of course takes many forms. But I want to ask you about the effect of the systematic suppression of minority votes. Does that effectively depress political participation and remove African Americans from the civic debate? Or does it, in contrast, inspire a fight for voting rights the same way it inspired people like Ida B. Wells? So we know, right, we have a a long history in which we know that uh, blacks did not have the franchise, and when they had the franchise, Uh, They were effectively denied the ability to deploy it. And we have a long history of people struggling to get the franchise and to make effective use of it. And so the suppression was often uh, seen as to be sure an obstacle. 
but not an obstacle that could eviscerate the desire and the will of Black people. I think we see a similar thing today if we look at Georgia and we look at Stacey Abrams and her campaign and their willingness to push back against voter suppression. But we should not be naive. We should not ignore the possibility that the very threat of voter suppression actually serves to undermine and erode the possibility of trust in political institutions. And in the absence of trust in political institutions, it is not beyond the pale to think that people would opt out. And it's also not beyond the pale to think that the opting out is itself a reflective judgment about the corruption of the system. Now, of course, I would want to insist that given all that we have seen from this administration, regardless of those who are aiming to suppress the vote, that all of us do what we can to beat back the darkness and that we actually not fall into what I think the right is hoping one will fall into, a sense of complacency and malaise and a sense of hopelessness about the possibilities of the political system in which we find ourselves. But even if we do that, even if Americans do step up to the plate and recover democracy, doesn't it seem inevitable that our institutions, our norms, you know, that democratic culture you talk about will have been stained, maybe permanently? Well, you know, I mean, this is actually a very, a very difficult question. And I think it is possible and appropriate to sort of take the approach that your question uh, suggests. But I want to offer up another option. Nothing about our institutions, nothing about the ideas that we hold are fixed in stone. You know, freedom was once understood to be a property of only uh, white men who actually own property. Right? Freedom, what it means and who can have access to it, now means much more. Equality was often attached to one class of persons over and against another. And now when we speak about equality, we speak about it in more expansive ways. And this is because institutions, like ideas, are not fixed in stone. And the stains over our institutions, even when they run deep, will in fact leave scars. But the scars do not in any way undermine the fact that we still have to get on about the business of living together. The real question for me is that in the context of scars, stains, how do we get on about the business of living together while recognizing right, that we have made deep mistakes over our history? Right? I mean, this is, the, you know, this is the one thing that I think um, we struggle with. We seem to think that in order to get on about the business of progressing and moving forward, it has to happen because, in fact, we have removed the scars of the past. But might it be the case that our progress, right, how skillfully we engage in it, is actually dependent on our ability to be responsive to those scars, not run away from them, turn to them. Can you describe more fully that world of virtue that you talked about earlier? Uh, yes, beyond uh, the voting booth. What other parts of society have to mobilize to beat back the darkness? This is the one thing that is quite challenging. One of the things that is a big challenge for democracy is that it is a system that relies on the greatest number of people to sustain it. And the greatest number of the people often stand outside of the administrative apparatus of a democracy, namely, they stand outside governmental institutions, right? So that means from uh, schools to churches to philanthropic organizations, Right? That means every aspect of society must serve as a training ground for democracy. And that means then that the sort of virtues of trust, of courage, that means that the willingness to show care and concern for one's fellows that we otherwise think is the hallmark of a governmental institution must also become the hallmark of all of those other minor institutions that I just gestured to, right? Mm, yeah. So that means that right, democratic virtue has to run all the way down. And that is both, that both points to the enormity of the task that we have in front of us, the difficulty of it, but it also contains with it 
the possibility of, of a different kind of greatness. So the thing that makes democracy very difficult is the same thing that contains so many wonderful possibilities. Getting back to John Dewey for just a minute, he was, as we mentioned, a man of many parts. One of those parts was as an educator. And is it fair to say that he uh, educated in the belief uh, that it was important to have an informed electorate? Oh, yeah. And of course, he and the great journalist and philosopher Walter Lippmann in the 1920s had disagreements about whether or not the scenery was up to the task of being properly informed. And Lippmann disagreed uh, and insisted that the demand that democracy places on us is too great, that we are actually not poised to be properly informed, and that, in fact, we need to rely on a kind of intellectual elite. John Dewey disagreed with that, right? And he disagreed based on the idea that ordinary, everyday individuals know where the problems are that affect their life chances. And Dewey insisted that because they know where the problems are that affect their life chances in an immediate way, they have a kind of local knowledge. And that the aim is to combine that local knowledge with more sophisticated expertise to offer up responses that actually properly track and respond to the concerns of the scenery. So Dewey was a, a, a right, he believed that all politics is right, local politics, right? And I think that there is actually some uh, truth to it, which is why you see, I think, in our current moment, that if you go from district to district, as the news has been reporting, what you're finding is that a good number of, of folks are animated by, by issues on, on the ground. And they seem to be driven to respond to those issues uh, on the ground. This is not to say, and I'll, I'll stop my point here, but this is not to say that there still isn't a sort of deficit and a serious one uh, in terms of being properly informed. There's no way to get on about the business of engaging seriously with Trump administration and his base and not think that one is dealing with both an administration and a citizenry uh, or constituency that isn't properly informed. And so uh, how do we deal with that? Well, the way we deal with that is to, um, in good, hard-nosed fashion, to vote folks out um, and to vote other folks in. But doesn't this come full circle to your idea of civic virtue and of personal virtue that even if you're not following the news and following every twist and turn of what's happening with the administration, you need to make choices about who you are and who our society is and make those choices at the level of your schools and your churches and your civic organizations, even if you are not glued to the news every day? So two points here. The first is yes, I think that's absolutely right. And the second point, which I think is related to the, the comment that I made earlier, it has to be the case, and I have to put it in this, in this form, it has to be the case that one is still open to and willing to listen to contrary information. That is to say, information, opinions that seem to, to bump up against the views that you have. And the moment in which one is no longer interested in looking at data, opinion, attending to views that stand in tension with one's own, then we'll, we'll be in big trouble. And I think that this is one of the, the hallmarks, right, of the, of the Trump administration and in many ways his base. And part of what is so damaging about this, if in fact it becomes the hallmark of the scenery as such, is that the very capacity we need in order to be responsive to the grievances, the problems we find ourselves confronting, the very capacity that we depend on, that is to say, the openness, the ability to sort of listen to the other side, the moment in which that, that goes away, then democracy is uh, already dead. In these dark times, what do you worry about the most? What I worry about the most is that um, Dewey may have been wrong, and by implication, I'm wrong. But I don't worry about that in some kind of um, uh, uh, sort of self-referential or private way, in the sense that I would, I would rather be right all the time. I mean, we all get things wrong. I worry about this because were it to be the case um, that Dewey got this wrong, then it would largely mean that the ideal of democracy uh, places too great of a demand on us 
to honor it. And it may be that democracy places too great of a demand on us, not merely because of the ideal that it represents, but perhaps because it is far too noble um, for us to attain. And, and that's, that's what I worry about. And what gives you hope? So what gives me hope, uh, again, I think comes from John Dewey, but it's not just John Dewey, it's a whole tradition. And that is the sense in which we as ordinary everyday individuals are not set in stone, that we are not uh, fixed creatures, that the capacity for transformation and for development is central uh, to who we are as human beings. And then in the context of the United States, we have actually made that elasticity or plasticity the hallmark, the foundation of a democratic society. And if that's the case, then it means that who we seem to be in our current treatment of our fellows and our current practices of cruelty need not determine who we will become. Thank you very much. Thank you. Melvin Rogers is an associate professor of political science at Brown. His forthcoming book is The Dark and Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. In the course of one week during the run-up to the midterm elections, a gunman reportedly muttered racist remarks as he walked into a grocery store in Kentucky where he shot and killed two elderly black people. A fervent supporter of President Trump was arrested for allegedly mailing pipe bombs to 11 of the president's critics, including a former president, a former vice president, and a former secretary of state. Another gunman walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and murdered 11 people. The synagogue is called the Tree of Life. That same week, the President of the United States pronounced himself a nationalist, a term with ugly connotations. This series, The Democracy Test, was designed to show that many of the challenges we face right now are not new, that the republic survived, and that there are lessons to be learned from those previous tests. Heather, in our first show, in our first conversation, we talked about recency bias, the tendency to give more weight to recent events. I have to admit, I'm shaken. I'm old enough to remember 1968, another terrible year of hatred and violence. Am I wrong to think this is as dark a moment as there's been in living memory? You know, I'm sorry to say I don't think you're wrong. I think this is as bad a time as we've had really since the 1850s, although certainly we have had violent other years in our history and violent times in our history. But what has really always defined us until this moment is that the people who were struggling believed in American democracy, and they believed that the problems that they were seeing were that American democracy was not doing what they wanted it to do. Now it seems we have a number of people who actually don't believe in American democracy and would like to replace it with something else. And how that's going to play play out, I think, is anybody's guess at this moment. I wanted to ask you a question, uh, another question about history. I've read comparisons of Trumpism to the know-nothings, a movement that briefly flourished in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, That is right up your alley, it seems to me. Is the comparison fair? There are elements of know-nothingism in the Trump coalition for sure. The know-nothings wanted to keep America as a country for white people and they hated immigrants. But it's really important to remember that the know-nothings really never got national power. They were powerful only in Massachusetts and they were powerful only for a very brief time. They were sort of a spasm when it became clear that the major parties were not answering the needs of regular people and they all collapsed. Something had to replace them and there were a whole bunch of little parties and that was one of them. The know-nothings got absorbed by the Republican Party very shortly after they started. And within a number of years, the Republican Party, including the know-nothings, was in favor of immigration, not against it. So, yeah, there were the same starting places for the know-nothing party and the Trump coalition, but they changed very, very quickly uh, in the 19th century. And the, the same impulses are getting stronger in America now than they ever became then in the 1850s. And before the word slips away in the torrent of news, can I ask you to expand a bit on nationalism? What has that meant in American politics? Nationalism really historically means a group of people who believe in themselves as a group that should run things. And that has taken on a connotation in the 20th century in America, not in terms of patriotism, like we care about America, but more of the idea of nationalism of a group that wants to control things. And in America, that has tended to be a a group of white people who want to control the country so it does not include immigrants or people of color. And that 
concept of nationalism as my country is better than anybody else or my people are better than anybody else and we should control things is one that has very dangerous and very negative connotations. And it's not a mistake in America, especially after World War I and World War II, to insert the word white in that. And that's it, when the way the president is using it. And it's a very frightening term for historians to hear. We don't want to hear it. It is not the same thing as patriotism, something to watch and something to be really unhappy about. I mentioned 1968 before, and it seems to me that a lot of the violence in 1968 was explicitly political violence. Of course, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and, and Robert F. Kennedy, two striking examples. Would you say that what we're seeing now, would you describe it as political violence? Or are, these, are we just exacerbating somehow uh, people who are unstable? No, it's political violence. But, but something that's interesting about that is that violence in America in a public way is almost always political violence. And this goes back to what you and I have been doing for the last six episodes is taking a look at why Americans care so deeply about our government and our society. And in part, that's because we are constantly reinventing it. So much of the violence that is described primarily as racial violence or gender violence is often about controlling spaces and controlling government and deciding where tax dollars go at its very basic level. And to look at a moment like this and to look at the violence that's happening, yes, it is absolutely being carried out by people who are mentally ill or who have some other issues that they're bringing to the table. But they're doing what they're doing because of political language and what historians call political culture. You know, there's a moment in a culture when violence seems to be the only answer to make things come out the way you want them to come out. And in America, that means that's the way you're going to control the government. So yes, it's political violence. And yes, it's horrific. But also, yes, it's nothing new in the same way that the assassination of Dr. King was nothing new. The assassination of um, Robert F. Kennedy was nothing new. Both of those things were, an, were assassinations to try and control what the government was doing and what the government's relationship with its citizens would be. And that is essentially who we are as Americans. We are constantly reinventing ourselves and reinventing our government. And when we do it right, we do it calmly at the voting booth and around tables and in the newspapers, when we do it wrong, there's blood. And that's the moment we're in right now. In this series, you and I have spoken with several historians and thinkers deeply troubled by this moment, but who retain their faith in the decency and resilience of the American people, their faith in democracy. What do you think? I'm deeply troubled, obviously. But I am one of those who retains faith in this system and faith in the American people. And a number of our guests have said this, that they look around and they see the violence and they see the language and they see the fighting and they're terrified. But one of the other things that people have said is that they look at the lack of faith that Americans right now seem to have in their leaders, in the people at the top of the governmental system. And in response to that, they're rebuilding democracy from the bottom. And in small towns and in cities and in conversations in communities, people aren't divided. They have pretty strong ideas about what they want out of the country, and they agree on those things. And they're making new coalitions and setting up new leaders. And that moment, that rebirth of democracy, is again exactly what happened in the 1850s. People tend to look at the coming of the Civil War and see it only as a crisis of violence and of what was going to lead to this catastrophe. But the whole reason that happened was because Americans looked at the leaders they had in the 1850s and said, no, that government's not answering to us any longer. And they kicked up something new. And what they kicked up then was the Republican Party that recreated the government so that it responded to people at the bottom of society. And we're seeing that exact same thing now. And, and I find it enormously exciting. We are getting to witness the birth of a new kind of American democracy. And there is nothing more exciting for an American, and I think for somebody who cares about the concept of human self-determination. But that's the perspective of a historian. You've seen a lot of this. What do you think is going to happen? Well, yeah, I mentioned I'm, I'm old enough to remember 1968 and the violence and hatred of the of the 1960s, the culture wars, the anti-Vietnam protests, the uh, uh, feminism, and, and of course, the civil rights struggle, possibly at the heart of it. I also remember the 1970s when there was this great deep demoralization 
of the United States after Watergate. If you remember stagflation, there was the impotence of the hostage crisis. There was the energy crisis. It looked like the country was no longer anybody's idea of what it had been just uh, 30 years earlier, yet we came out stronger than ever and stronger in our democracy, I think, than ever. We've seen remarkable change and remarkable adaptations by the society in our lifetimes. And uh, a smarter person than I said, this too shall pass away. Yes. And after the 1970s, if you remember, there was that moment when the U.S. hockey team beat the Russian hockey team in the Winter Olympics of 1980. And that image, you were there. I was there covering it. Oh, man. Man, so so you get it, you know, this idea that, that it was all over and it was done, and they win, and then there's that image of Jim Craig, the goalie, skating around the ice, wrapped in the American flag, looking for his dad, and, you know, that sense that we really can do anything so long as we stick in it together and we put our all into it, I think that's really what makes America great, and also made that moment great and also makes us come out of these terrible times. And that, I'm afraid, I will always have faith in. Heather Cox Richardson teaches American history at Boston College. She's written books on the history of the Republican Party, on Reconstruction, and on the wars against the Plains Indians. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on The Democracy Test. It's been great. It's been a lot of fun, Neil. As The Democracy Test signs off, we have to thank the people who made it possible. The series was funded entirely by donations. Our contributors include Hugh Borax, Mary Herman, and Adele Dennison, who used the donate button on our website, which is truthpoliticsandpower.org. If you visit, you can find more information about this series and listen to all of the programs in our archive, including the five previous episodes of The Democracy Test. That's truthpoliticsandpower.org. Our executive producer is Sue Goodwin. The managing producer is Arjun Hutchins. And our digital manager is Jan Andrews. And special thanks to Chip Jones. Our music was composed and performed by the Red Water Trio. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. You can follow me on Twitter at HC underscore Richardson. And I'm Neil Conan. The Twitter handle is at Neil Conan. Thanks for listening. The Democracy Test is produced by Kohala Mountain Radio and distributed by APM, American Public Media. Thank you.